Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio on the Catherine Zox Show. We have two guests coming up in this hour. My first guest is Dr. Jeffrey Brantley. He is author of True Belonging, Mindful Practices to Help You Overcome Loneliness, Connect with Others, and Cultivate Happiness. And uh, Dr. Brantley is a best-selling author, uh, co-author of Calming Your Anxious Mind, and the Five Good Minutes series, which has sold more than 150,000 copies. He's also a consulting associate in the Duke Department of Psychiatry and founder and director of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program at Duke University Center for Integrative Medicine. My second guest is going to be Thomas Gagliano, a social worker, successful businessman, and high-profile leader in addiction and self-help therapy, and his new book is The Problem With Me, How to End Negative Self-Talk and Take Your Life to a New Level. But first, have you, Dr. Brantley asked the question, have you ever felt isolated or alone? Most of us probably could answer yes to that question. And even though technological advancements have allowed us to have nearly instant contact, Twitter, Facebook, cell phones, with everyone in the world there is substantial evidence that people feel more lonely and isolated than ever before. And studies have, uh, but studies show that people who say there is no one with whom they can discuss important matters has nearly tripled between 1985 and 2004. So there's certainly a disconnect between needing to connect, being healthy when we do connect, and yet feeling more isolated and lonely than ever before. So evidence, which research that's been done, supports that. The, the theory that we need social support to feel good, to feel good about ourselves, to not feel lonely. Um, here to talk to us about this problem or this disconnect is Dr. Brantley and to share his insights with his, us about in his new book, True Belonging. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thank you, Catherine. I appreciate being invited. Okay. Well, let's talk about your book, first of all. And uh, we have a real problem, I guess, because as you know, as you said, you know, research, and I'm, I've been—I guess I'm quoting you—but um, you know, we seem to think that we're connecting with everybody all the time, and yet we feel more isolated and, lo- and lonely than ever before. Well, that's what uh, what I gather from different research sources. Um, you know, people can be think they're busy uh, with all the texting and the internet and the email and everything, but actually, the sense of feeling connected uh, is uh, is might take more than that, and it is certainly uh, seems to be a rare and precious commodity these days. So is there a solution to this? I'm assuming there's a solution because having read your book, uh, it seems to me that there is something that we can 
do about it, and you kind of outline that for us in True Belonging, so let's talk about that. Well, you know, uh, psychologists and the research I've looked at, uh, the basic uh, finding is that the, the feeling of being lonely is actually more of an interior experience. It's, a, it's related to how people, how each of us talks to ourselves about our circumstance, you know. If I keep telling myself, I'm so lonely, nobody likes me, I don't have any friends, keep going over and over that view, after a while it actually shapes the very uh, tissue and wiring of our, my brain, and it shifts how I perceive things. So in our book, Wendy and I, my co-author, we, uh, we try to remind people that we're actually bigger and more powerful and mysterious as human beings than our little ego might uh, suggest, and that we could use some natural gifts for awareness and opening the heart and connection to, uh, to appreciate, to really remember that, uh, you know, that we are uh, connected, and to then to maybe find some inspiration and some resilience to move out into the world that way. Yeah, because that's, I guess that's what we have to, uh, you know, I think want to hone in on. Um, if we feel disconnected, if we feel isolated, how does that affect us as a society, number one, and, and us as individuals, I guess, number two, in our relationships with our family? Because if we are a society that's feeling isolated and alone and feel like we're, I guess, when we feel that way, I, I, I think in, in some ways we're suffering, uh, what does that do to us? What does that do to us as a individuals, families, and as a society? Why do we have to do something about it? Well, you know, there's uh, individual health consequences. I mean, for you know, there's a lot of data that shows that people who feel alone and lonely and isolated, that their health outcomes are are not as good as people who are more active and interconnected, or, or just don't feel so isolated. <clears throat> but I, I also, this is Brantley's theory, but I, I think that some of the uh, lack of civility and the kind of uh, rampant kind of fear and, and, and meanness in our society uh, is a way, in, in a way, is a reflection of people not seeing the, the larger uh, common goals and common good and just being kind of lost in a sense of isolation that way as well. So, so it affects how we interact with other people, you're saying, because we feel this way and we don't feel good about ourselves and we get nasty and mean with other people, and so obviously that's not good. But the health thing, what does it do to us if we are feeling that way? How does it impact on our health specifically? Is it because we just, then we don't take care of ourselves? We well, overeat? I think, there, we, I, you know. I think there is the neglect part, but there's also, uh, you know, on the level of the mind-body connection, you know, there's a suggestion that people, that the immune system is uh, not as robust and people who feel down and isolated, uh, that maybe the uh, cardiovascular system or even the central nervous system chemistry is uh, shifts in some ways that in the long run are not that healthy for people. So are we more prone to addictions? I just mentioned that, like overeating, <clears throat> drugs, alcohol, those kinds of things. I think so, and I noticed with interest, I think your next guest is an expert on addictions. And, uh, and you know, it might be interesting to follow up with that person. Uh, certainly, you know, folks tend to self-soothe when, they, when there's an interior experience of distress, fear, anger, uh, loneliness, uh, whatever the word is. Uh, we, you know, we, we tend to self-soothe, and, uh, and that can lead definitely to addictive patterns and behaviors and substances in many ways. Right. So, in other words, it's not good to feel this way, and more and more of us are feeling this isolation and this loneliness. Um, so what do we do about it? I mean, obviously, if it's going to impact us, as we've described, then it sounds like that's, a, you know, this 
state of loneliness and despair is not a good thing. So how do we overcome it? What do we do? Well, you know, what we point to in the book is some practical uh, practices, really, things that individuals can take up in their own life that might help them reconnect with their natural power and uh, beauty as human beings. So it starts with awareness, mindfulness, which is an awareness we all have. It notices. It's not thinking. It just know If you notice your thinking pattern is worried or happy or whatever, that quality that notices is the mindfulness. And it can be cultivated systematically. There's scientific data now that shows that people who cultivate mindfulness uh, sort of disentangle from the usual stress reactions more easily and that certain parts of their brain associated with uh, uh, feelings of well-being are more robust. And so there's some, some real uh, evidence to uh, encourage the cultivation of mindfulness. Well, how do you get somebody to do mindfulness? I mean, mindfulness has to be in the context of our society, which, as you and I described earlier, everyone is up and out and texting and sort of running and racing and emailing and, you know, this kind of pseudo-communication. How do you get people to actually stop? Well, you know, I think, uh, first of all, understand that, that we all already have the quality of mindfulness, at least as a possibility. You know, the fact that you might notice that you're feeling uh, busy or hurried, <laughs> that, that quality of noticing that awareness is the mindfulness. There's a, a natural mindfulness we all have, according to psychologists. Um, but then it can be cultivated through systematic reflective practices or meditation practices similar to the ones we put in our book. And this doesn't mean you have to subscribe to any faith tradition particularly. Uh, we build our practices kind of in the tradition of mindfulness-based stress reduction that, uh, you know, it's, it's a core human capacity to be mindful, and, and one can cultivate that mindfulness. So uh, knowing you've got it, knowing that it might be useful to you, and then having some method of stopping, pausing, paying attention on purpose in the present moment, uh, that's really, in a way, uh, a place to start for anybody that's interested. So let's start from you wake up in the morning, you have to get ready to go to work, you have to get the kids ready for school, you have to make plans with your partner, your spouse about how, what you're going to, you know, divide up the, the work that you have to do during the day, you know, with the household, et cetera. So what do you, how do you start your morning with mindfulness? Well, you know, what we encourage people to do, what I try to do, is to just stop and notice, you know, mindfulness could be, John Kabat-Zinn defined it as, the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in a non-judging way. So, you know, you wake up in your wherever you slept. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> wherever that is. Wherever that is. And you stop, and you, when your eyes open, just stop and, you know, feel your body, feel yourself breathing. You might even notice, well, I'm awake now. And then you get up and get in your morning routine. Uh, and then, you know, when you're in the routine, let's say you're, uh, you know, you're making coffee. So actually pay attention to the sensation. You're holding the, the, you know, the pot. You're putting the water in the pot. You're spooning the coffee into the basket or whatever. And to really just be present with what you're doing while you're doing it, at least from time to time, to get into the habit of paying attention more closely, more intentionally. When you're standing in the shower, you know, let yourself notice the feel of the water, the sense of the steam, the smell of the soap, even for a few breaths. These uh, types of practices will all uh, kind of have a cumulative effect in strengthening your ability to be present. 
as you describe it, I can, I, I really, it's very helpful and I do understand it. And you know, I'm thinking I do exactly the opposite. I get it to, I wake up in the morning, jump up, skip the mindfulness, get the coffee, running to take a shower. And at some point, sometimes I'm sit, standing in a room saying, why am I here? Because I, I can't remember. I am not in the present, not <laughs> mindful. And I'm thinking of all the things that I have to do when I go to work, when I sure. have a meeting. That's the opposite of mindfulness, isn't it? Well, it is, but, you know, you you just like it happens to me, too, and probably all your listeners, you know, we train ourselves to be forward-looking, and we get caught up in that momentum, and we miss the present moment, and there's a lot of uh, consequences to that that aren't pretty. Uh, but, you know, uh, the other thing we tell folks in our classes is when you notice that you, you're not being mindful, it's important not to be critical of yourself. It's just what your mind does. It, it moves ahead or behind. And so a moment of awareness that you're not present really is a moment of mindfulness. And it's a time to be grateful you have a mind, it can move, and just to gently bring your attention back to where you are. And doesn't that, Dr. Brantley, that when you do that, it really does, I guess you're saying that slows you down. I mean, because if you are in the present, you aren't going to be racing ahead thinking about what you have to do for this if it's Monday morning for the rest of the week. It just keeps you, I imagine it also helps, and you alluded to this, helps lower your blood pressure. I, would, I mean, it would seem to me it would anyway. It would get rid of maybe some of that hypertension and, and a lot of other things, you know, headaches and stomach aches and all the stuff that's kind of associated with this fast-moving kind of way of behaving. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there is some interesting data about that. When people practice you know, systematically being more present, paying attention, it does, it can uh, disengage that uh, stress reaction a, a bit and have those kind of benefits. Uh, but, you know, I like to say mindfulness doesn't have a speed limit. You can be moving very quickly and be mindful. But what happens to most of us is the faster we move, the more our mind moves, and it might go off into the future, get caught up in those worries. And so uh, it can be very useful, especially you know, at the beginning of your practice, like in the shower, that you just deliberately come back and move a little bit slower for at least a few breaths to really help focus your attention on what you're doing. So what would you do after you've, you've done this, you've been at home and you're getting ready for your day, then you go to work and you work in a big corporate environment and everyone is, you know, very high, high tension um, how do you do it there? Because you, I imagine you just don't do it once a day when you wake up in the morning. You well, it, that's better than nothing, but you're right. The conditions change, and the, and the body can take on the stress reaction in a high-tension <laughs> environment. But what, you know, uh, well, what we recommend is uh, in the stress reduction program is to be mindful as best you can throughout the day. So you're there in your office, you know, and you're waiting for the big meeting. Well, you know, you've got five minutes. So come back and do some mindful breathing like we talk about in the book, you know, or some mindful walking. And just uh, disengage from that, uh, again, that momentum of looking ahead and being stuck in stories in the mind that you can't do a lot about right now. Um, You're walking down the hall in that building and that, you know, pay attention to your walking and notice what your thoughts are. And if you need to be planning, do it. But if you're just lost in a loop of worry, you could uh, let that go, you know, and come back to the walking. So it's possible to kind of weave in to your day um, this attention of coming back to the present moment in a non-judging, uh, non-interfering way. And it can have enormous impact, really, on the, 
the way you feel by the end of the day. Yeah. How, you know, we've sort of been talking or we have been talking about uh, your average person who has a family, a job, and going to work. What about different populations? Does it work differently, let's say, for children or for teenagers or for old people or for very sick people? How, how does this right. work? How can well, it help? It's an excellent question, uh, Catherine. You know, there are people doing a lot of research now, particularly with ch- mindfulness in children and teens. And uh, one of the interesting things about some of those studies have gotten written up in, you know, like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and places like that. And, and I remember one, a uh, little fifth grade, little, what I'm remembering is in one of those stories, a little fifth grade boy said, they said, what does mindfulness mean to you? And he said, it means I don't hit people on the playground anymore. You know, it means I don't hit people on the playground anymore. You know, it's like that little guy learned how to uh, stop and not just react impulsively so much. That's and, a great example, and I'm thinking of other examples. Uh, you know, the, the, one of my boys was a counselor at, at a summer camp, in a, you know, eight-week summer camp, and half the kids at this summer camp, or, you know, summer camp for middle, upper-middle-class kids, were on Ritalin because they were up and running, and yeah. it seemed to me that if they, like the example you just gave, if, if mindfulness were taught, then perhaps you wouldn't have to give these kids so many pharmaceuticals, so many drugs. Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, certainly a study worth doing. You know, some of them probably need it, but maybe a lot of it is much more about their uh, how they've wired, you know, shaped their brain through their busy, busy, you know, lifestyle. And if some of that changed or their nutrition, then maybe they wouldn't need so much of the medicines. You know? Yeah. So it's a more than it's a complex problem, but at least this it seems to me would would fit in. It would be a part of it, helping to calm them down. Um, all right. So let's talk about older people, sick people. How does it work for them? Well, you know, uh, one of my mentors, Roshi Joan Halifax, has for many years now uh, taught uh, people who work with hospice in hospice settings and end-of-life care uh, a program called Being with Dying, which is really about training professionals to um, and caregivers to use mindfulness and other contemplative practices so they can stay present on behalf of the people that they're trying to help. So the caregivers can benefit and then there are uh, accounts, uh, you know, the, the famous book uh, Tuesdays with Mari comes to mind, you know, where Mari was trained in uh, some mindfulness practices, actually, and as he reported to his, uh, his former student, you know, he was much more in the present moment. He was open to gratitude and, and reflection in ways that uh, were quite beautiful and, and, and made that book a bestseller. Yeah, that's a good example um, of, you know, the person who is sick themselves and using mindfulness. But you mentioned the word caregiver, and I guess that just kind of was a light bulb for me because now caregiving is a huge problem, I mean, as you know, in the United States, or it's a big issue, and you have all the, the baby boomers sandwiched in between taking care of their their college kids and their parents, and, and so much stress is put on them. So mindfulness is really good, as you say, for the caregiver to calm down, to stay in the present, so that they don't become so stressed out and overwrought with all the responsibilities. Well, I think it is, you know, and the, it's easy to get caught up in these very sad and challenging situations. Um, and there's no way to deny the sadness at times or the challenge. But I think what the what I've seen the mindfulness do in my own life and then working with others is uh, is to help us not only cultivate presence and not be overly uh, kind of absorbed into the sadness, but it also helps us cultivate self-compassion. 
you know, to hold the pain we're feeling in this challenging situation, hold our own pain, uh, not with criticism, but with self-compassion. And that can make a huge difference in the ability to be compassionate with the other. Is there any downside to practicing mindfulness? Well, you know, I, I think um, it depends on the intention in a way. <laughs> I think I remember teaching a retreat one weekend, and one of you know, sort of a type A personality, the first night said, I plan to get enlightened this weekend. And uh, and I just said, well, you know, good luck, you know, <laughs> but be careful about uh, trying so hard that you actually distort what it is you're doing, you know. Um, the other thing, uh, it's not really a downside, but it is a reality. In, in our stress reduction classes, we tell people it could get more stressful before it gets less stressful because uh, the practical truth is that as people stop and really pay attention to their inner life and the world around them, in a mindful way, they might realize that they had been denying or running away from some really painful things, and now they have to uh, kind of face them in a different relationship. So it can open up a Pandora's box in the beginning, but that's not necessarily negative. As you say, it can be a good thing because then overall it will change your life if you become aware of the things. that If you're, if you're running on denial, that's not a good thing. Absolutely. You, yeah. and, uh, and so it, you know, the early uh, kind of the intensity of the distress uh, is the doorway to uh, healing, really, for many people. Uh, you know, we only, well, we have a, a few more, we have quite a few more minutes left, but I want to kind of ask you, I'm very curious about this, since you are the founder and director of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program at Duke Integrative Medicine. Talk to us what uh, about integrative medicine. Can we talk a little bit about that? What What is it, and is it gaining popularity uh, you know, for a while I heard a lot about integrative medicine, and, and now I hear more about just, you know, Western medicine, pharmaceutical drugs to cure whatever ill you have. So um, what are you doing at Duke? Well, thank you for asking. We, uh, we're very excited about our work at Duke. Um, we started in the early 90s. We had support from the chancellor and some very generous donors. And uh, in 1998, we started our first program was actually Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. We now have our own building. You can, your listeners could go to www.dukeintegrativemedicine.org. It's like all one word, Duke, D-U-K-E, integrativemedicine.org. And the basic, you know, our view is that it's really good medicine. What we try to do, us and other academic and non-academic practitioners of the integrative medicine, we try to use evidence-based uh, Western allopathic approaches, but also a look at evidence-based uh, approaches from other paradigms like Chinese medicine, the mind-body medicine, which of course has a base in Western medicine, the meditation, the mindfulness-based stress reduction is an example of a mind-body kind of intervention. So we try to bring together a, a, a knowledge base related to a variety of healing paradigms that has an evidence base, and then bring that to focus on the individual. We believe that the individual is at the center, that they have the most influence of anyone on their own health and healing, and that uh, the training in mindfulness and awareness is at the core of them beginning to be a partner, an active partner in their own health and healing. Give us an example, Dr. Brantley. Patient comes in, client, individual, whatever you we call them these days, and they have a let's, they have a problem. You, you know, you you diagnose the problem, and then there's treatment. Give us an example of of, of the problem or a diagnosis, and how you would treat it in an integrative 
way. Oh, okay. Was, yeah. So a good example, a common one would be a person comes in, their doctor found they have high blood pressure and, you know, their their weight is maybe a little too much and, and like that, cholesterol, those things. And so they come over to us and they see one of our physicians and they uh, are recommended a treatment plan that includes, uh, of course, not only whatever their Western doctor told them, but I, I mean, our doctors are Western trained too, but they also might be assigned a, a health coach to help them uh, identify and meet needs that they'd have for goals, you know, health goals. They'd be given some uh, consultation with a nutritionist. Most likely, especially in the case of blood pressure or eating situation or weight management, they'd be offered a seat in one of our mindfulness-based stress reduction classes so they could grow in mindfulness and learn how their own uh, patterns of reaction, you know, could be shifted in the service of their own health and healing. So it would be a combination of um, they might even be uh, offered, depending on the case, some massage or acupuncture uh, as a way of helping manage the condition that they came in with. So they'd have a comprehensive treatment plan, really, that would include uh, their participation as well, moving at their own speed. I, my One of my issues is I think that we're over-medicated in this society and that doctors are, are part of that over-medication because it's the easiest thing to reach for. You know, you don't feel well, you have high blood pressure, put her on or put him on high blood pressure medication. So this particular case that you gave an example... Would it be one of the goals to, you know, when you have a nutrition expert, when you have all the, you know, the, the, the Eastern ways of reducing stress to get off? I mean, I'm assuming this person comes in taking blood pressure medication, medication to lower your cholesterol. Are those goals to reduce the medication or get rid of it entirely? Or Well, I don't know that medication is a devil, really, I think. <laughs> I mean, you didn't say that, but, you know, uh, you know, I think that our goal is to work uh, whatever's best for the patient. And, and certainly, um, you know, most health providers will tell you if their patients can lose weight or manage their stress or exercise more, there's a good chance they can reduce or even come off of some of their medicines. Uh, every physician pretty much knows that. So um, it's just that we try to set up a structure that's a partnership and, a, and an educational environment as well as a treatment environment. Uh, as part of integrative medicine, you know. But certainly I think getting people to take less medicine is a, is a reasonable goal when it, when it is good medicine, <laughs> when it's a good <laughs> approach. All right. So, you, you know, do it, I, I guess this was kind of related to the question that I asked in the beginning of this. The, this is what you're doing at Duke in the integrative medicine. Is this something that's taking off in the United States? Is this the, the, the whole concept of integrative medicine? In yes, other it is, Catherine. I'm happy methods. to tell you that it is. <laughs> we weren't so sure for a long time, let me say. But, uh, but uh, just as evidence, there's an academic uh, consortium uh, of integrative medicine uh, centers in academic medical centers around the country, uh, the Bravewell, B-R-A-V-E-W-E-L-L consortium. And uh, you can uh, look that up in, on the Internet, but it actually, I think the number now is in the high 40s of inter- academic medical centers that have some sort of integrative component. Now, they're not all the same as ours, and they are all kind of have their own unique beauty, but, but there's a, a, a movement in that direction. The other really big news uh, that I can cite right now is our uh, director at Duke Integrative Medicine, Tracy Gaudet, Dr. Tracy Gaudet, after 10 years with us, was recruited by the VA 
to help bring integrative medicine into the national VA system. And she has, uh, in January this year, moved up to Washington and took over an office and a job that was created just for that purpose. Well, that's, that's fantastic because, as I understand it, with all these uh, veterans coming back from Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, I mean, we have a huge problem, don't we, in terms of, of feeling isolated and stressed and, you know, the consequences of that very high suicide rate. So it, I, I assume that this is going to be part of helping to alleviate that problem or problems. Uh, well, I certainly hope so. I know, you know, Tracy was instrumental uh, with us in, in a model that included mindfulness and health coaching and uh, a lot of other approaches to help uh, those complicated uh, conditions. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, following with uh, interest her her success there at the VA, her her, uh, her initiative. Well, it's a it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We only have a couple minutes left, so I want to give you the chance, Doctor. What do you want to want to leave the listeners with? I'll, I'll mention the book again: True Belonging, Mindful Practices to Help You Overcome Loneliness, Connect with Others, and Cultivate Happiness. And that other website, if you're interested in other integrative uh, university centers or medical centers around the country, it's bravewell.com. That's where you can get that uh, information. Brave, probably just Google Bravewell Collaborative. Okay, Bravewell. And then it would lead you to the right. I don't, I don't have it right in front of me here what the actual website is. Okay. Okay. So in a minute, do you want to sum everything up? <laughs> well, <laughs> what, I, what I like to say it really is a parting uh, offering is that, uh, you know, just to remember that your ego is not as big or powerful as it thinks it is, and that our true uh, nature as human beings is much more mysterious and sacred in a way. And, and what we hope people can do is uh, is use these practices to be aware, to open the heart, to, to see the connection, and to, and to move in the direction of positivity, uh, not only for their own good, but really for the uh, good of our world. Great. Well said. Thanks so much, Dr. Jeffrey Brantley, MD. Nice to have you on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine, and keep up all that good work. Good luck to you and your listeners. Thank you. Coming up next, we have Thomas Gagliano, as I mentioned before. He's a businessman, a high-profile leader in addiction and self-help therapy. He's also been featured as a keynote speaker at many meetings and conferences in New Jersey and greater New York. He wrote his new book, The Problem With Me, How to End Negative Self-Talk and Take Your Life to a New Level, with Abraham J. Torsky, MD, uh, who is a famous psychiatrist and uh, author of Addictive Thinking. So don't go away because he'll be with us in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line in business talk voice america business now there's a new destination for video content VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more voice america variety health and wellness business sports green talk power up motorsports and seventh wave network now have their own video channel components plus check out exclusive programming including movies music educational courses science and history current events and short features high definition premier quality programs available 24 7 VoiceAmerica.tv. if you think you've seen online tv like this before let us support Surprise you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back, and I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is the author of The Problem Was Me, How to End Negative Self-Talk and Take Your Life to a New Level, Thomas Gagliano. And I'm going to say he's almost an MSW social worker. I think it's going to happen within the next couple of weeks, so I have to say congratulations for that. He's a successful businessman and a high-profile leader in addiction and self-help therapy. Welcome to the show, Thomas, or Tom. Uh, Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you, and thank you for allowing me uh, this time. I appreciate it. It's great. So let me just say, uh, you're getting your MSW this week? Well, my official last session is next Tuesday. Uh, I have all of my work completed. I just got to kind of show up in the class. And that's it, and it's, uh, it's been challenging. <laughs> another, another challenge, but that's okay. It's been fun. Definitely a challenge. Uh, yep. I, got my, I just have to say, before we get into the book, you know, I, I got my MSW, and I was uh, pregnant with my third son, so uh, that was a challenge, let me tell you. Two little babies and a third one on the way. Oh, boy, wow. So if I could do it, anybody can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It right. was, uh, yeah. yeah. I remember walking into my first class after 27 years of being in school, and I literally looked up, and I looked up, and I said, God, I hope you're getting a kick out of this. I hope, you hope you're enjoying this. Uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was challenging, but it was re- well worth it, well worth it. All right, well, let's get back to the book and get back sure. to why you wrote the book. And, um, you know, you've been in business, successful businessman. Why did you decide to write a self-help book? How did this come about? Well, Basically, it came from my real-life experiences. You know, I grew up really believing that money was the cure to all problems. It was the cure to anything, any problem you had, it was going to bring happiness. And, you know, most of my life, I was very motivated, very determined to make money, and, uh, and I did pretty well in the business world. Um, basically, what I found out was that as a child, I had a real hurt inside, there was um, things that occurred, things that happened, and that uh, being a successful man with a loving wife and children 
wasn't really going to fix what was broken inside of me. I didn't realize that as I'm walking through the process. Um, I found that out through, unfortunately, going to a lot of false solutions and addictions earlier in life. But, uh, but basically, that's how it all started. I call um, money my first false solution to fixing what was really broken inside of me. That's, uh, that's how I look at it. Right, so you're saying that the thing that made you aware that, hey, this isn't working, because you said loving wife, right. uh, kids, making a lot of money. Most people would say, well, what's the problem, Tom? I mean, that sounds good to me. But you just added a piece yeah. to addictive well, you, behavior. What were you, drinking too much, taking drugs, doing those kinds of things? Well, first it was just working obsessively. And, and when I realized that the external world couldn't really fix what I believe was broken inside of me, I had to build an awareness of what was broken in order to know what was fixed. And all the money and my wife and children, basically, if I didn't come to the realization that I didn't love myself, I really wasn't going to let the love of others in. just wasn't going to happen. So I had to build some kind of understanding of, again, why I push people away. Why don't I allow intimacy into my life? What happened as a child that created these voices or negative voices that just would not allow anybody close to me. And that's really a um, very big part of becoming happy. It's really being happy with yourself. Uh, and until that happens, money ain't going to do it. As we see with actors and actresses in this world that have money, power, you could see they don't have serenity certain people. All right, so in other words, you were having difficulty connecting with your loving wife, with your yes. kids, with your with friends. You had a problem. I mean, is that what you're saying? There was oh, really yeah. a problem. I, I couldn't allow it in. Couldn't allow it in. Yeah, and, and I thought, uh, again, uh, for solutions that money was going to be the key to this happiness and that, you know, and then I went to gambling and finally I had gone to womanizing. All of these solutions at the time with the distorted thinking, again, coming from a childhood that had a lot of insanity, my thinking wasn't clear, and I went to a lot of false solutions believing that, ah, this is what was going to bring me peace, and it never did. Peace came when I started to understand what was broken inside, the awareness first. Without that, I can't fix anything. I then began to um, create a methodology that's in this book uh, of positive actions. Um, awareness alone does not do it. Right, awareness so awareness, I step. see why, you, okay, you thought, I mean, you, womanizing and, and, you know, all these kind of addictive behaviors. Did you have to hit rock bottom? I mean, did you have to, like, did your wife leave you? Yes. Did your friends leave you? What happened? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, in the beginning with working, um, I worked six days a week very hard. And on Sunday, there was, again, there was a hurt inside of me. I just remembered not being happy. Sunday would come, and everything would stop, and I couldn't run to work to change my feelings inside. I couldn't run to work to medicate my feelings inside. And I was left alone with my own skin, and I didn't like it. It didn't feel right. Uh, it's like always running and never really staying put. And, uh, and eventually, that's when I went to gambling. And I realized in time that all the money in the world... Uh, gambling wasn't going to fix what was broken. Um, it was another false solution. I wasn't gambling to win money. Um, I was gambling, again, in the distorted thinking, to think 
the more I would win, the more it would fix me. The more I would win, the more I would fix me, which it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that eventually that doesn't work. And, uh, and that's when my wife did leave me, yes, with my children. And my next question is, I guess, this was your, I'm assuming, an aha moment that, you know, I'm aware this is not working. I've reached rock bottom. Uh, you know, I'm not doing well in any areas of my life. At that point, did you come to also, uh, were you aware that, hey, something must have happened in my childhood? So, and, and what is it and how can I fix it? Well, I'll tell you really what, what I started to look at. I started to look at how I became who I became in life. And I didn't start at point D. We're kind I had of losing you. Can you talk? Are you talking straight into your phone or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I had to look at point A, point B, point C. I had to look at the map. How did I become who I became? What happened in childhood that created the person I was as a teenager, a teenager as the person I was as an adult? You know, how, how did I get to the point that I started to behave and act this way? What was my thinking? What was going on? And I had to really go back and look at those unswept corners of my life to see why I behave the way I do. Um, you know, addiction is not a question of just IQ and intelligence. If it was, we'd all just read books and we'd be fine. Um, it's an emotional um, void inside. And I had to go back and figure that all out. Now, what happened really was that my big moment came at my father's funeral. And I had been in program in uh, therapy and 12-step fellowships for a long time already. But I had the willingness to get help. That I had. But I developed the willingness to take direction after that. Very important distinction. The willingness to do what other people that I trusted in recovery suggested I do. Not just show up, but do the actions. Um, and what happened after that at my father's funeral was... Um, I remember there was many men and women from the 12-step fellowships and from the support groups that I had gone to that were at the funeral, and I felt this tremendous warmth inside. That was the hurt that I was talking about initially, that hurt of really never being safe in childhood, never feeling important. And I think at my father's funeral, when I saw these men and women come there just for me, just for me, see, I always believed as a child, that if you did something nice for somebody, it's because you wanted something back. There had to be a motive. And I stuck to that thinking most of my younger life. Uh, I realized at the funeral that they were, the, at the wake, they were there for me, these people, and I felt a, a, a real warmth inside, and it really created this, um, this it, my barriers dropped. I started to, uh, to really get involved, and, and uh, because I am But do you think, I, uh, Tom... Yeah. Do you think also it's not by chance that it, it was at your father's funeral? And, I have, and I'm assuming that your father was part of this whole thing, you know, you, your childhood feeling that you were, I'm, you haven't said the word worthless, but that you really weren't, you know, worth anything, um, that there was something about the way your father, and I assume maybe your mother too, treated you so that you felt that way, those feelings, the low feelings of self-esteem right. and feeling right. worth it. And here he is, now he's gone. So, I mean, well, a, yeah. my father was somebody who was in, uh, got a lot of self-help himself. He was a multiply addicted person. When my father would uh, come home at night, if he didn't come home at a certain time, 
that meant he was going to come home drunk. And if he came home drunk, somebody was going to get hurt. So that's what I mean by living in an unsafe environment, not just physically but mentally, never knowing what's going to happen. Uh, and my mother had a, a lot of her own problems. She was a kid herself uh, when, when I was born. And, uh, you know, she was 19, and she was living in a world of insanity as well. And what happens to the child is they don't know what's safe. They have a perception of the world that's very scary. They don't trust, and they live in a lot of fear. My father had gotten help and became a different person. Unfortunately, I still viewed him as this monster as an adult. Um, and I went, uh, he had, was stricken with stomach cancer, and I had gone to see him one night in the hospital. And I was sitting in a chair right near him, and he turned to me and said that uh, he, the cancer had spread and he was very ill, terminal. And he said to me, I was sitting where you're sitting 20 years ago, and my father had lung cancer. He says, and I could never tell my father that, um, that I loved him. So my father had become a different person through working on himself. He was able to see my pain, even with the pain he had at that time. Um, and we did form a closeness before he died. And when he died, I was very angry. I was angry at the world that he was taken at that time. That's when the people I knew, and I can't emphasize enough the importance of a support group. It allowed me to do what I couldn't do for myself. Well, I think there are so many people, unfortunately, probably millions of people in this country who are in the position that you were in. And right. so, of course, we want to use you, and, you know, you're a, a as a good as an example right. uh, of someone who can change things around. So, who would you say would benefit from your book specifically? I mean, well, I, I think several people would. This is, I believe that perception as a child is so important. It changes us to play out roles, roles in our adult life that sometimes is destructive to ourselves and others. I think that who would be helped greatly by this book is is three markets or three areas. One is those that think they're just evil people that deserve to be punished, as I did. I thought that I should be punished for the evils that I did for my addictions. And when I started to run groups, and after this wake with my father, I started to run groups in schools, churches, at my house, and I try to help others with that kind of perception, negative perception of who they are. And you talk about the warden in your book. Yes. That, what that's, talk to us about that, because it sounds like that's the warden speaking. Yeah, I, I, I call this fictitious character the warden. So the warden basically uh, comes about in a um, very negative um, childhood. And he's a fictitious character that I used to say, and I talked to people about, and I talked to them about their warden that sat on my shoulder with a bat. He's like an internal critic. Um, and, you know, he negates my ability to have compassion for myself. And he creates a belief in me that mistakes are intolerable. You see, as a child, uh, I developed the belief that if I made, the, made a mistake, I, I became a mistake. I internalized and identified myself as a mistake. It wasn't, mistakes weren't an opportunity to grow. They weren't a part of the learning curve. They, I, I, every time I would make a mistake, all the shame of all my mistakes come, came to the surface. And it, it, it created isolation. I was an isolator. 
I didn't want anybody to get too close. And the warden was this fictitious character um, who instilled a very peculiar definition of intimacy. And intimacy uh, in my life was fearful and painful. Therefore, I wasn't going to let anybody get close. And I always say when anybody did get close, the warden showed me ways to push them away. And so the warden showed you the way to sabotage your own happiness, as you say in the book. Right. And obviously you've been able to overcome that. You know, you've written the book and and you've become part of this whole, uh, you know, self-help. You've you've created this whole self-help program for yourself and for others. But talk to us now, because we only have a few minutes left, how that's worked for you and your own family. Because, you know, you started out, your wife, your kids, everybody left you. But now I know and I had seen you on, on your video on YouTube, and you have a son who you're very close to, and you are not repeating this kind of generation-to-generation generation bad stuff with, uh, that happened with your father. Right, right, right. It's, you know, we're, we're, these, these messages from childhood are so powerful. It's so easy to fall into them. It's so easy to carry on those destructive messages from generation that it's not just the question of changing them, but the question of being aware when they're coming. And I think if anything in my life I've achieved, it's awareness of those messages and when they come. And if I do go too far with my children, um, we are able to talk about it. They're able to share their feelings. I, I talk about a situation where, for instance, when my, uh, we had a dog that had passed away and my son was very broke up about the dog, he was really affected, and I followed him to his room, his bedroom, and I said to him, I said, how you doing? And he said, he said, okay. But I sensed he was sad, and I went over to him, and I put his arms around me, and he put his arms, and, I put, and we, he started to cry. And as I held him tight, he was crying even, even, uh, even more. And I realized that's the kind of stuff that I've changed in my life. You know, I give my children a safe place with their father. Uh, this wasn't a place I had as a kid, but it's one place, it's a place that I give to them. They know their father's safe. They, I'm predictable. I'm not, you know, not home on Tuesdays, not home on Wednesdays. It's an avenue where they have that I didn't have where they could come to their father and they can cry and they can laugh and they can say what they feel. Um, and again, it's not, you know, Disneyland. Mistakes are made, but the avenue is open that we can talk about things. Um, I won't, they don't, uh, you know, if they fail, they don't internalize that they are a failure. They know that they could come to me and we could talk about it. Very, very um, difficult to achieve because of the strength of these inner messages that we grow up with. And if we don't allow others to help us and, and, and we're not able to take direction from them, we, we're destined to fall back into these roles, these roles that we get chained to play. That's what I believe, and that's, that's really what my book talks a lot about. So in your book you're saying that even though you get to the point even though there are people out there who may want to help you, maybe not your own parents, because of the way you were raised, you don't trust people, your exactly. lack of, yeah, and so you, even people who want to love you and want to take care of you, you don't allow them to do that. And so for your own kids, that's not the case. They can make mistakes, they can, uh, but they aren't a mistake. They just made a mistake, they do, you know, and they'll make good decisions and bad decisions, but you're there for them consistently. And I think that's a really important message, especially in this day and, you know, today, where people yeah. are, really very frenetic and, you know, sometimes uh, 
not consistent with their children, and uh, they have a lot of caregivers taking care of them, and so it's it's really. I think your message is 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 really significant. Um, There's a strong yeah. point that I make in my book and with others is that I can either be right or I could be close. Sometimes it's important to guide our kids. It's important to show them our experiences, our strength, and our hope. But it's also important to know that being right is not always the most important thing. There are times to be close is much more important. And to be able to sit down with my children and that they can falter in life and they know that they can talk to me about it. And it comes down to, you know, they can't act and think the way I want them to act and think. It's just not going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen. And if I can provide an environment where when they fall, they'll come to me and I can help pick them up again, that's so important. Rather an environment where if they fall, they think that I'm judging them so critically that they won't come to me. Um, and and that's, uh, that's what I was talking about, about, you know, loving yourself and allowing love in. They allow yep. me in. And they allow you in, and you right. now are able to love yourself. But, you know, there's one last question I have yeah. for you, because I know that, you know, obviously you, I always say, I think in this example, you're a good example of this, it's always the process of recovering. There's an I-N-G on it. It's not yeah. just you've recovered and that's it. So all of us, you know, are in different phases of recovering from lots of things that have happened to us in our childhood. Um what happens? Do you ever have setbacks, and then what do you do? Because, I mean, you know, well, something can happen, a crisis, and you, you, sometimes... You hit, you hit on a, a great point. There's three essentials I write in my book. One is awareness. You have to know what's broken inside in order to know what has to be fixed. Two is positive actions. Awareness is not going to do it. I have to put actions behind it or nothing changes. If you do what you always did, you get what you always got. The third essential is maintenance. Because if I don't maintain a program of some form of recovery, the warden will be back to take over my actions and behaviors again. He's powerful, and he'll wait until the wrong day, the wrong time. And if I'm not connected to healthy people, if I'm not doing a program, a maintenance program, which is the third essential, without awareness and action, there's nothing to maintain. But with awareness and action, if you're not maintaining a program, and I mean a support group of people, um, either with a therapist or I put in my book the ways a good support group can be structured, the criteria and guidelines, okay? You need maintenance because if you don't, those old voices, those childhood voices that led to the destruction will come back again. So you need the third essential maintenance. Would you say one of the words would be vigilant? One must be vigilant? Well, I don't, I don't want to make the word, again, wording is important to somebody that's spent a life thinking that they're failures. It's very important. Like I've heard people say, stick with the winners. You know, that's like if you stick with the winners, it means there's losers. You don't want to have any negative connotations to it. Yeah, it's vigilant, but it's also an understanding that you're going to fall off the path at times. It's what we are as human beings. The important thing isn't if you fall off the path. The important thing is you get back on the path when you fall off. So you want to make it where you have, again, compassion enough for yourself to say, I can make mistakes. I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to get that voice of being okay from my support group. I may not get that from my childhood messages, but I need those people in my life every day. 
that are going to give me the messages that, you know what, I'm going to be okay. So many of us never had those simple words, you're going to be okay. We never heard that as a kid. You follow me? Yep. Last question, two yep. more minutes. What about, is there one person, that you, I mean, you can turn to your support group, you have created that support group, and they, you have to maintain and you keep up your relationship with them. But, Tom, is there any one person that you would call? Let's say you really, something happened, you know, I mean, you may have a diagnosis, that mm-hmm. you know, a medical diagnosis that really gets you frightened. And is there a person that you would call? or? Honestly, it's a group of people. It's there's, a group, okay. There's people from further in the past, recently. Um, but my family is these people. They're the ones that are my fourth solution, if you want to call it that. I went from work, a workaholic to a gambler to a womanizer, and I finally hit on the right solution, and that's people. They can do for me what I can't do for myself. So it is really not one person in particular. Uh, in fact, I really... Uh, wrote this book because of the guidance of others that are in my support group. And basically, I was reading The Purpose Driven Life, and uh, it had said that the people that you're closest to will guide you, and they're the ones that suggested I write the book. That's how all of this came to fruition. But uh, it's not one person. It's really more or less a group of people. But, you know, I, I know in my life... Know, I'm going to say, because we do have to, to say goodbye in a minute, but it's sort of like it reminds me of Hillary Clinton's statement... You know, it takes a village, and it really does take yes. a village. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. The, uh, the title of the book, The Problem With Me, is you can buy it online, Amazon.com, and bookstores everywhere, right? And is there a website we can go to, Tom? Yeah, uh, gentlepathpress.com is um, a website where you can go also to buy the book. You can go to my website, thomasgagliano.com, and you can view my uh, the YouTube in there, which uh, will also tell you a little bit about the book, uh, a little bit about the methodology and techniques of the book. Yeah, it's a, it's a good website, and it's a good, a good video on YouTube of you. I think it really gives us uh, even more insight into, into Tom Gagliano. It's been great having you on the show today, and you, you really are inspirational. So um, I want to wish you really good luck with the book, and, and thanks for sharing it with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Really Great. appreciate it. Thank Great. you. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show, and I'm your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you had a good morning, have a good week or a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.